Hello, Harja, because while she's the Harish, like Blue and New Bellages, Lomhain, Claire and Yuhan, because Moholyakin Shaw, a Gunasa Bellages Aaron, Johnny Dillon. Hello. Hello, Johnny. You're all very welcome to this month's episode of Blue and New Bellages, or Folklore Fragments, where this month Johnny and I have actually been overtaken by contemporary happenings, specifically news reports issuing from County Kerry of mysterious sinking roads and disgruntled fairies. Oh, yes, only in Ireland. And so we thought this was the perfect opportunity to take a critical look at this topic, one which we think we know a lot about, really, the fairies, but actually looking at how this occurrence was reported on, it was interesting for us to see the status of contemporary beliefs on the matter, as well as some of the reoccurring common misconceptions which still exist. Now, a topic like this is vast in scope, and so we've chosen to focus on just a few specific elements today. It's one we could return to again and again and still never cover all that our archive provides by way of material. More reason then for you folks to pop in if this is your cup of tea or research subject of choice. Um, For the sake of clarity then, today Johnny and I will focus on the ideas surrounding the origins of the fairies, who or what they are and where they came from. We'll look at common misconceptions we see time and time again on the topic. And we'll also look at this idea as noted in our news report of sacred places in our living natural landscape and the interplay they have with the unseen fairy world. So, right, let's jump in. And myself and Johnny might first give you a quick synopsis of this Kerry case that we're speaking about in case you haven't um, seen it in your own news media and it'll help frame our discussion. And then we can really get stuck in and find out why Johnny hates Tinkerbell. True. Yes, we can. <laughs> so it was, let's see, when was this? Um, the Irish Times article, August the 8th. And uh, it's headed here. Danny Healy Ray claims ferry forts caused dip in Kerry Road. So there's a talk about, there, there was a mention at a, at a Kerry County Council meeting. Mm-hmm. It says here, uh, he first raised the issue of fairies at a Kerry County Council meeting in February 2007 after the N22, then a relatively new national primary road, developed a dip near Curraglass. In a formal motion on the cause of that hollow, Mr. Healy Ray, then a councillor, uh, had asked, is it fairies at work? The council's road department replied that it was due to a deeper underlying subsoil a geotechnical problem, which is another. The rationalists there. The, the in rationalists in, in, um, in, yeah, in full effect. Um, and so, so it's this idea of this road being fixed and the dip reappearing again yes, and again. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it says the issue was raised again at a county council meeting last week where Mr. Healy Ray's daughter, Maura, said her father was convinced fairies were in the area. Mr. Healy Ray said the road network passes through an extensive area of standing stones, stone circles and ancient monuments that is rich in, in folklore and fairy stories. He said a fairy fort was causing the problem which had recurred on the left hand side of the road uh, just before the Kerry Way. That's what's responsible for the dip in the N22 despite the council meeting, can, excuse me, council spending around 40000 to repair it, he said. So this kind of went fairly viral and um, mm. everyone went fairly lula about it. I think let alone the fact that the Healy Rays are probably fairly good... Um, uh, ambassadors have thrown causes at the best times anyway yes. so, but even to put that aside the thing that I found particularly interesting about about this article wasn't even the, 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 the this particular article itself say but the, the response that had garnered um, from the public in Ireland and in particular I remember reading an article about the fact that this material had appeared but it was one of the most read articles in the BBC yes. uh, of that same week. And this seemed to cause a kind of minor meltdown among um, people in this country, a, a sense of kind of embarrassment and a kind of humiliation that 
that these ridiculous notions should be kind of read by uh, the great and the good over the BBC, basically, mm. which I thought was interesting in the sense that there's a kind of nervousness or an embarrassment or a sort of, I don't know, a kind of a sense of shame, perhaps, that that attends to some of the aspects of our um, folk tradition and kind of cultural inheritance, whether you believe it or not, but the, the, the sense that this is something to be embarrassed about, basically, yeah. or that we're kind of making fools of ourselves in front of... Um, the, you world. Know, the, the big wide kind of global world and all its modern kind of glory whatever and that I found particularly uh, interesting particularly like in reading the comments a great many of the comments now I suppose a person is always should be dissuaded from reading the comments underneath yeah. anything it's like kind of going to the toilet wall to look for uh, your wisdom wall. or whatever yeah and um, for the kind of scribblings thereon. but the, the 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 responses of many of the people there was um I found quite well interesting to say the least I suppose um, but generally tended towards kind of the vitriolic and the, you know, haven't we grown out of this and haven't we kind of moved beyond all this and it's kind of very rational and reasonable, apparently kind of um, materialist approach to things. But the ideas that are being described and represented here in this article and brought to bear um, are particularly ancient, very, very, very old ideas, um, which we'll talk about today to, to kind of get a better sense of, to try and as well to dispel some of the misconceptions around um, and to try and kind of set out the stall of what does tradition actually say about this other world community that's seen to live alongside us at all times that have been in popular culture is kind of distorted from 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 what we see in, in, in tradition itself and um, so it should prove a pretty fruitful area of discussion I'd say it's one that I'm particularly inter- interested in I've been interested in um, aspects regarding the supernatural and, and the fairy host and the fairies for a good number of years in here but there's a huge huge amount of material on this this topic one that we could never hope to to cover in there its entirety. is and actually just as you've said that johnny i'll for the sake of giving people even just a quick flavor the handbook of irish folklore which we reference very often by the late great shannon suleiman in under the category on mythological tradition which is where our fairies um appear even just to give you some of the subheadings we've got Fairies, we've got names and terminology, we've got the form and appearance of fairies, we've got fairy luxuries, fairy work and business, games played by fairies, fairies visit homes at night, we've got fairy places then looking at the fairy dwellings, the moats, the hills, the forts, the rats, we've got abduction by fairies, children taken by fairies, women taken by fairies, then we go into the realm of the changelings and the puka, we've got fairy lovers, people being set astray by the fairies. So you name it, on and on it goes. Mm. Um, we could do numerous podcasts really on this. Yeah. But one of the things that you said that resonated with me, one of the catchphrases I always use in our tours is, folklore is about more than fairies. True. And if we ever have Blurney Belgish merchandise, that's the first thing that's going on the t-shirt. Excellent. So I'm actually, when we first decided to do this podcast, I was a bit reluctant. My first gut instinct was, oh no, fairies is what everyone expects but then I thought actually no you're right that this is the perfect opportunity to respond to this um item in the in the media mm. because we very rarely get an, an a snapshot of contemporary belief in action so that this was the perfect time for us to actually look critically at the subject and start dispelling some of these misconceptions that drive me mad mm. and make me dislike talking about the fairies yeah so that actually we can save the fairies and actually go back 
and unearth the real ideas of what fairy lore and authentic fairy lore in Ireland is. is. And relates to. Yeah. One of the things that we often spend in, in introducing people to folk tradition in tours or in teaching students or whatever is to try and dispel many of the misconceptions that exist around what is folklore and then often the terminologies and, and the kind of aspects of, of, of our inheritance that manifest within it and um, because there are often kind of distortions and so on but if you think of the fairies in, in popular culture say um, they, they generally tend to manifest as a kind of uh, yeah the, the Victorian literary Tinkerbell image a kind of diminutive tiny uh, feminine um, figure kind of little wings. fairy wings and this sort of stuff so there's a particular image in popular culture that exists um, and the term even you know as a fairy to kind of refer to someone who's particularly effeminate or something like this is delicate effeminate kind of notion mm. basically um, that doesn't reflect in any meaningful way the the corpus and body of material that relates to the fairies or the sluishi or Danishi in 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 folk tradition it doesn't reflect the the the, the dynamic kind of nature of, of their existence and the very the dubious and kind of the, the dangerous I suppose sense that that goes along with them in many ways um, if you take say even the terminology I mean it's interesting to say that this the whole the question of this particular article that has proved the impetus for this particular podcast for us centers around fairy forts mm -hmm. and everyone surely around the country would, would, would understand or know that broadly kind of what, what a fairy fort is that there's kind of some sort of knoll or gymnast or a hill in their local area and um, that's has some sort of kind of otherworld association at, at a, a, a greater or lesser degree basically in, in popular tradition uh, and these things dot the country over in their thousands upon thousands and so generally it was assumed that when you go on to one you can see uh, three more from it or you can see other fairy forts from it and you can kind of carry on through the landscape that have their own place names or names attached to them likewise that have their own um, supernatural lore and, and legendary attached to them so there are kind of kind of intermediary points between this world and the other world that was seen to exist at all times all around us and if we look at the word even used for Nadine Shi or Shioga or whatever that word she means kind of other world beings nowadays but it, it in its older derivation it used it, it the, the the word means um, a mound or a hill so at the earliest phases of the irish language when we refer to the dana she or even people have heard of the banshee the other world woman mm. that this she refers to the other world but it also means specifically to a hill in the natural landscape so they're rooted in the burial mounds and and cairns and and kind of um, wayside hills and, and heaps that that dot the landscape or old earthwork forts and that whose significance is kind of no longer understood and that the inhabitants of which are long gone and, and they've been forgotten or whatever and so these sites garnered a huge there was a taboo with interfering with them with going near them and, and with touching them and the fairy host or the fairies themselves apart from being this kind of tinkerbell uh, literary kind of figures are regarded as a parallel community another world community that exists that are more akin to nature spirits basically. yes and that's the word actually nature spirits that i always find more authentic than fairy really yeah because it, it, it yeah. Kind of ties in with that old um celtic mythology idea of nature spirits and the because again the celts were um polytheistic in terms of worshiping many deities and then this idea of natural elements in the landscape embodying mm. these spirits so nature spirits is always the term i kind of use now when i'm talking about fairies mm. because i just when you when you use it in tours i love it because i think yeah that's actually far more representative in a way yeah and it's also it's kind of it's it's devoid of some of the 
the kind of I don't know what how would you say it? It's like you just sometimes when you use a certain word, it immediately brings certain connotations to mind. So when you talk about the fairies or someone, it's hard to strip away this kind of um, the 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 again, it's like the little kind of pink wings, Tinkerbell kind of world or whatever. It's hard to to get past that. Is it something um, we begin with very early in life as children? We well, it's a certain generation. So say for our generation onwards, um, you would be confronted with these literary. Um, Hollywood images of fairies and so like you said it's very hard to strip away what you've been um, immersed in mm. from childhood mm. so I can see why people understand fairies because even if you google the image fairy which I did just out of sheer curiosity the majority of the images are all these Tinkerbell images mm-hmm. and then you've got say for example the fairy queen by Edmund Spencer which mm. is the 16th century um, allegorical poem and again those images are slightly more romantic still, mm. um, but less of the Tinkerbell. But you've got Edmund Spencer, you've got you know W. B. Yeats, you've got Lady um, Wilde as well for her. Exactly, and again, we always speak about these and this kind of the literary mm. slant given to traditional um, lore and how that frames a person's frame of reference away from the traditional understandings. So people do come with a lot of baggage to the fairies, but again, it's understanding that fairy and she are two different things and about trying to be more critical in our understanding isn't it yeah yeah it's a good the 19th century kind of references that you point to are, are totally correct they're good because i remember reading some writing of speranza's of lady wilde and she's talking about that kind of thing these like fairies dancing in the moonlight and kind mm-hmm. of wispy you know whenever um so it's framed in a certain kind of genteel 19th century um literary uh, kind of style, whatever, which is not without its own merit and, and its own imagine, imaginative power and so on, but it doesn't really, it doesn't reflect the, I would say, I guess the, the, the dubious kind of and dynamic energy of the force of these these figures as they appear in popular tradition, largely as, not as morally ill or morally corrupt, but as dangerous basically, mm-hmm. and and as as a community and a group that are alongside us at all times that have parallel kind of structures in their own lives they're ruled by their own rulers they they um, tend to their own cattle and their own and um, their own livestock they um, will take people away with them they play their own sports they have their own wars they have their own funerals they have their own kind of world going on and it's about us encroaching on theirs as yes, much as exactly. theirs encroaching on they, ours they enforce it? kind of in in many ways uh, cultural norms through reference to taboo so the idea in particular as we see again with the healy rays is that you know you don't touch a fairy for it. you don't you don't burn any any um um wood or anything found on it you don't take it into your house you don't certainly don't level one you don't do this you just leave these sites alone um and there are huge amounts of of narrative kind of uh, um, of tales and tradition that that exist describing the individual who does plow for it and who suffers some huge kind of retribution mm-hmm. their livestock all die and, and all that sort of stuff but the idea is that these kind of cultural norms are expressed um by virtue of this this kind of other world community that whose wrath you bring down upon yourself when you transgress by going to a certain space or by committing a certain act or by not doing a certain thing whatever that there's a kind of connection between this world and the known world and then the other world of kind of nature and chaos and all sort of stuff that they in a way represent but that we then can embody and make sense of by by giving a narrative structure and a narrative kind of symbolic frame or whatever and and the fairies they kind of they fill that space in, in popular tradition in many ways. It's that idea that I loved when we were reading one of the articles about borders and we've spoken about this before in May Day 
and as we know May Day, the 1st of May and the 1st of November Samhain are particularly busy time for the fairies mm. when they're moving house. Obviously, kind of, we all um, sympathise with them. But those periods of time where um, the border between this world and the other world is at its finest, I suppose. And mm. what I loved in one of the articles was this idea of order as well. So the minute you transgress or you break a taboo, you're moving from order to disorder mm. and in that way moving from one across the border yeah. um, between this world and the next. Whether you cross a fairy path, whether you um, obstruct a fairy funeral or a slushy, whether you um, you know cut a branch off a fairy tree or destroy a fairy wrath, it's crossing borders mm. into their world, breaking taboos. Yeah, even the individual who... who the, the the greedy individual who doesn't give the old woman a loan of something when she appears at the back door asking for the loan of some uh, meal or a candle or salt or something like that and then the good neighbor who does and one is punished and one isn't you know that but that this old woman who appears isn't a regular old woman she's she happens to be a fairy or this other world woman but it's not immediately known by the protagonist in the story that again there are ways of instructing kind of this is a way to behave this is a way not to behave and then even in in a, like you're saying fairy roads even in a kind of uh, a spatial sense or a geographic sense you have to navigate the world according you know to physical boundaries and, and metaphysical ones in the sense that there are an invisible network of roads and abodes and dwellings and and kind of feasting halls whatever mm -hmm. that dot the country over particularly in the rural landscape in those areas that are unmarked by by uh, the labor of human hands and that organizing excuse me that organizing force where when you stray into those places you you invite upon yourself the strange otherworldly disorder that that then manifests you you kind of go to this uh, another realm basically mm -hmm. so there are huge stories then of people kind of hearing music in fairy forts or or um, feasting and dancing in fairy forts or eating the food when they come into these parties and they can never come back to Which this you're never world. meant to do you no know, just so, so folks it, yeah, no matter just, how hungry you are if the worst point. happens just abstain abstain exactly that yeah but they, they kind of represent this intermediary point, I suppose, the fairy forts specifically are kind of an intermediary point between this world and the other world. Um, and that has been the case for our forebears for countless generations. The, the opposite view that, that the natural world is just a kind of a, a heap of material items, it's just um, uh, rocks and grass with no essential spirit or dynamism to it, whatever, um, is a very a profoundly recent view. It, it's a view that would have kind of I suppose in the last 100 years, less than 100 years, become the mainstay whereby it's now automatically assumed in most instances that to ask a question of, about these things that, you know, you're, you're viewing it from the point of view of materialism or secularism or whatever, mm. um, or a, a, an otherwise disenchanted landscape, that the landscape is essentially disenchanted and it's just this material kind of heap, as I was saying. Um, but the, the material in, in tradition that relates to the fairies and to fairy forts relates specifically to the question of kind of, of, of meaning in many ways of like how what do these places mean what do they symbolize uh, how do we navigate them and there's a huge huge body of lore and custom and tradition to explain all manner of human ailments or adventures that uses reference to this this other world community basically mm -hmm. um, but even there's an intimate awareness of, of the landscape and the natural landscape of the place names within it and our own place in it that's that's demonstrated by a person's local knowledge of these fairy forts um, there's a, place, a piece going to play here um, from Armagh in 1965 and this was recorded by Leo Cordoff and Michael J. Murphy from Patrick Carroll. And I just like this, it, it doesn't really reference any kind of supernatural 
kind of material explicitly, but he's just giving a list of fairy forts in his area. But I was just kind of amazed by the detail with which he could list family names, names of fields, names of valleys, as he goes around this parish describing all the, all the forts in a, in, a, in a row or whatever. Pat, about the forts up in your part in Kagustiki, you know, in South Alma. Aye, the, the, the forts, there was a line of forts started over in, beyond in Ravensdale and came on ahead across the fort to the old moat above the fort hill, and right on the top of the hill, and right down then to Roski, another fort opposite there, and from that up to Pat McShane's, Pat McShane's fort, and across to Barney Wax fort, then up to Captain Alexander's fort, and down then to Pat Mathesis, and then Rudy Arts Fort, then Voices Fort, then down across to Pat Black's, across then to, to Roxas, and over to Castle Roach. And they went along, they continued right along over there towards Cross Midland, practically followed the lane of the border, high ground, and worked down into the valleys. That's as far as I know. I love that at the end. That's as far as I know. I mean, I like. You'd wonder if people would even have the first idea of what were, existed in their localities now. It's funny, <clears throat> it's a kind of slight digression, but there's, I remember uh, years ago getting the bus from Greystones into UCD and be going along and you come over the hill at Winegates, this big hill, and there's all these fields down to the left. And as you're going up the hill, there's similar fields onto the right down to the sea. And I was looking at all these fields and realising I, I didn't know the names of any of the fields. Yeah. I've lived and grown up in this place, I have no idea of the names of these fields. But then thinking upon it further in the sense that, say, even by virtue of the, the, the methods and the infrastructure that we use to travel to and fro, it can kind of limit or delimit the scope of the space or the way in which we interact or engage with the space. So that um, if I had the, the, the happy misfortune of having to walk over the hill, say, to the next town of Bray every morning, or through these fields or across these certain kind of parts of the natural landscape, that the the, the points within it would, would have a kind of greater significance. This or that lane yes. made, this or that rock, this or that tree. And there would be a process of kind of the process of naming and the meaning. There would be a, f a greater functionality to that in that mm -hmm. sense that uh, I would have a sense of where I was and the, the, it wasn't just a field. It was it was such and such a field. Or these people or, or, or exactly yeah. Or or there would be narratives or material connected to this or that family or this or that story. But as you then kind of zoom out and then then it just becomes um, you know um, a kind of car traveling between one town or the next and then there's just maybe even a motorway or just a kind of blank road there is no intermediary kind of cultural zone or space there's just a non-place between two destinations that yeah. you just enter through in this empty kind of meaningless um transit basically and so the, the the thing that you find in opposition to that again is when you look at these kind of accounts of um, a, a very intimate knowledge of the natural landscape and then of the cultural landscape as well there's the there's the kind of I was going to say they're a conflict, but it's probably not ideal. But there's the balance between uh, culture and nature that you find expressed in the fairies, that you find expressed in a narrative regarding them, and the idea that these are, are kind of an ordered community that reflects our own, but that are, are rooted in the chaos of the natural world and the other world, that kind of where everything is upside down and inside out. Um, but I'm quite amazed even by the, just the, the, the ability of that, individual's, um, that individual there, Patrick Carroll, to describe in such detail and to have that just to hand immediately the, the names of, of families and of forts and in his own the small patch so you can see how rich an area is and how detailed in, in history and lore that area is these are the families who live here mm -hmm. uh, these are the names of the places without even getting into any of the aspects of belief or custom surrounding them and just so. shows the value of the collection here again doesn't it absolutely because 
once it's gone, it is gone with each passing generation. That's it. Because we're certainly not acquiring it unless we set out proactively to acquire it. Unless, yeah, unless in many ways we go to the, to the, in many cases, the old people in our own communities, the likes of, of Patrick Carroll nowadays, to ask them, what was this called? What is this place? Where do I live? You know, and, and that, as another digression in a side, I think would be, would prove an antidote in many ways to the kind of um, the antipathy that many people can have for their own locality in the sense that it's nothing, there is nothing to it. It's just a field. It's just a, a road. It's just whatever. But when you begin to know, actually, there's a story about that, the standing stone in this place, or there's a story about um, uh, this apparent just mound of, of earth here, then it becomes a different space. It becomes a different uh, kind of landscape that you can then enter into that has its own meaning that relates to your identity, basically. Something that is in many ways, modernity, I think, stripped away increasingly, mm. I would say. But one of the things I loved, there was a quote from um, Jeremiah Curtin, who we often mm. speak about, but, and, and this is in the broader sense of, as you were kind of touching on, the fairy dwellings, but also just in terms of the value of these stories and actually conveying lessons and mm. um, items of value about our own localities in which they're based, he writes... The fairy tales of Ireland are looked upon by most people as mere whimsical stories, some of which were invented um, by people and all of which refer to superstition and queer fancies special to the Irish. Nothing could be further from the truth than such a view. The more I look into the tales, the more I am convinced that they are of ancient origin and contain elements of serious value. And it's that, I think, just ties in with what you were saying. We really need to get away from this idea of thinking of them only as whimsical stories but actually looking at what they tell us about our communities, looking at what they tell us about the beliefs of those communities, mm -hmm. the concerns, the hopes, the dreams. Yeah. Because stories, as in the stories that we have now, and even novels and kind of literary forms, they're repositories for conveying ideas contemporary to our own societies. Mm. And so we need to start looking, as, as many scholars do, we're not um, reinventing the wheel here, mm. but just to kind of be, again, more critical and a bit less embarrassed about enjoying these stories and seeing what they tell us absolutely yeah not to be not to be embarrassed but not to be humiliated by by the the uh, the mythologizing and symbolizing and storytelling tradition that our forebears and ancestors uh, so kind of artistically engaged in and practicing because what you have in these narratives isn't just the kind of you know errant flotsam and jetsam of these kind of uh, idiots basically mm -hmm. who, who kind of come up with these stupid stories you have the the as Sean Sullivan described in narrative tradition, the nobility and artistry of our forebears in it. But this the distillation of, of wisdom over countless generations into these um, symbolic kind of narratives that, that refer to a sort of truth as, as well that, that a person can then use to, to navigate it. And don't behave like this, or if you do, um, you know, you'll suffer in some way. Or, or don't, don't be overly greedy, or don't be overly prone to... to um, self gratification or, or gambling laziness or, or laziness or, or whatever, yeah. And, yeah, and the individual who is will 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 suffer in some way, or um, or likewise those individuals maybe who are who are powerless in a society often will find there are narratives where the fairies help a widow or they help her with her crops or something like that. Like, but the, 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 the we we root ourselves in in stories in in meaning and in this symbolizing and and mythologizing around. Uh, the nature of, of being and dealing with the strange kind of existence, I suppose, of, of the human condition, in want of a better word, and the, the difference between, or the, the edge, the line that runs between nature and culture, finds expression in our giving kind of a, a boundary and embodying that which we can't understand, that finds expression as this, in many ways, this kind of other world, 
community. But if you go into that, there's a huge amount of, of wisdom and knowledge, real knowledge and wisdom that can be gleaned from these narratives and from these stories, which in, in the modern age, we just kind of heave overboard like ballast, mm-hmm. throwing our own memory overboard like ballast to kind of move faster and faster with greater kind of speed to, to where, to nowhere, basically, to forget we have gone down the dystopian line now, Oh, sure, it's never far. But, but <laughs> it's, it's never it's though, far off. It's though you do, with the, the aim is to just kind of forget and throw away and decry and kind of be embarrassed by... Who um, we are. Who, who we are. And, and instead of stopping for a moment and worrying, well, actually, you know, what is the symbolic wisdom or knowledge that can be applied um, from these narratives, even to my own life? Or what, what is the wisdom that's in there? Because that's what... That's what you find in, in this material, the distillation of this kind of, um, like I was saying, the symbolic uh, kind of knowledge or, or knowledge term that applies itself into this kind of symbolism. And though though there are expressions of imaginative fancy, there is a truth to them in a sense. You know, you can argue as to the nature of that, whether it's literal or what or not. But there is a kind of symbolic at the very least truth that guides our actions and, and activities and so on as humans. And that's what um, much of what's offered, offered by this material and how it expresses itself then very, very directly in the natural landscape from which we uh, have arisen, basically. Um, but you know what I love as well? Um, the more I was reading about um, you know, fairy lore was, although what we were just saying, the importance of valuing our own unique culture, it's, it's not that we're decrying the culture of other nations. Of course or not, not, at all, not at all. But, and that's what I love in seeing the links. So, you know, when we speak about migratory legends? Yes. For me, the first time I heard about um, the hidden people of Norway was when I sat down to do my research for this. And I'd never heard of the hidden people of Norway mm. being their, um, I suppose, the their fairies. Mm. But those similar links about this idea that the hidden people were the children of Adam and Eve and that mm. one day God came to visit them and poor Eve being under pressure, as I can always imagine, you know, when you've got a house full of children, and she couldn't wash them all. So she only showed God the children who were clean, washed and dressed. Hmm. And she hid the others away. And God, being God, obviously knew this. And he said, for, from now on, they will be the hidden children. And so the descendants of the hidden children are the hidden people of Norway. That's amazing. Isn't it so interesting? Because again, yeah, yeah. I've never, never realised. But it's this idea of the migratory legends. And for the folklore um, aficionados, I'll give you some codes. The, the true believers. Oh, for the nerds. The, the, we're not nerds, Sorry, Johnny. No, we no. are dedicated scholars. Hey, look, no, it's a small but dedicated fan base. <laughs> exactly. yeah, rattle off the numbers there. <laughs> so now these will be very well known, but two that we, can, we won't even go into detail, but if you're interested in it, if you look for Migratory Legend 5070, 5070, Midwife to the Fairies, and Migratory Legend 6071, The Fairy Hill is on Fire, it shows, it's again, it's a story that travels across um, Northern Europe mm. and indeed representations of fairy lore is, and the belief in the other world is universal. But um, it, there are two to look out for. And it just goes to show, again, as we're always saying, you look at the Irish situation as a microcosm, mm. but it's simply one, um, thread. one thread in this broad tapestry mm. of world cultures. Um, and for me, that's what's so unique, learning more about your own community and culture, but being able to see what it tells you as well about the movement of people and stories mm. and culture across broader planes over a period of time yeah. as well. That's, that's, it, it's, it's, um, that's one of the things that kind of in coming to, to know more or learn more about Irish folk tradition, I began to then 
similarly have more of a sense or connectedness uh, or understanding of the broader European context from which this is, has kind of arisen and the very archaic and ancient ideas that underpin um, older kind of forms of of of, uh, of European thought essentially fr from these kind of archaic practices and pre-Christian scenarios and, and early Christian practices and beliefs and so on. I mean even all you have to do is look across across the water, across uh, Britain and England and Scotland, Wales, Cornwall and so on. There's this huge um, uh, fairy tradition, bogies, um, puck, puck um, and of course he's connected to our puka here as well. Yes. You know? yeah. um, there's part of that exact same kind of corpus and, and belief and so on. But part of the reasoning, I suppose, behind the international interest in, in Ireland in the early 20th century of folklore scholars from Germany, from Sweden and, and elsewhere, uh, was the idea that on account of the lack of an industrial revolution and the account of the lack of the Roman invasion in Ireland, that much of the, the waters that had dried up in other parts of Europe were still kind of running as living waters here as, as far as belief and narrative and so on. So that when you, you look at Ireland, you look at uh, Europe in a certain sense, or Northwestern Europe at least, so that you find the same traditions manifested across the way. So the household familiar or household spirit who helps out in the farm will be present in Ireland. You'll have the kobold and Germanic folkloric traditions. You'll have um, the bogies helping down in the mines and so on in Cornwall. You'll have the tomte in Sweden who's helping with the farming and this, that. So you have this kind of broad landscape and, and these kind of particularly kind of old ideas, I suppose, that find representation that when you look at the Irish context, you similarly begin to appreciate and understand with greater detail the broader uh, European kind of context as well from which these things have, have appeared, basically. Absolutely, which we, we hope people are understanding and maybe giving them cause to investigate as well. Yeah, there's a, hu there's a huge, huge amount of material out there. Some of the problems as well, though, with, I mean, material online can be quite... Uh, I'll put some links in the description of the SoundCloud so that people can, can kind of go for themselves to mm -hmm. find certain sources. But, you know, when you type this sort of stuff into YouTube or something, there's a yeah. generally kind of wind up up to your knees and... and yeah, be uh, quite discerning, yeah. Yeah, you do a bit. But it's, it's, it doesn't take too much to find kind of where to go. Um, and especially in trusted sources like JSTOR and the yeah, academic sources. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of old texts and things that have been put online um, that can be accessed pr pretty easily as well. And the Bellagist Journal on JSTOR, which is, even if you're not subscribed as a scholarly institution, you can get three articles for free each time for your shelf hmm. and then you can just um, delete as you read them and take more. Um, but as far, were we worth looking at origins at all? To describe some of the we certainly can um we've had we have it on our agenda but we've already have? touched um on the idea of the the nature spirits so i suppose it's well worth just seeing the other two um the christian theological approach isn't it yeah with the well, there's the, the kind of the early say the i was going to say there's the there's the mythological kind of approach and there's the later christian tradition mm -hmm. which actually both of which i suppose now that i think about it off the top of my head it could be wrong given that they're both rooted in the kind of literary sources, they're both Christian interpretations in a way. Mm. But the, the earlier understanding of how the fairies came to exist uh, or why they're here was the idea that they are the the descendants or they are the Tuhedidanen, this mm. mythical race of gods who inhabited Ireland before humans came along and who were beaten in, in a battle against the Milesians, who were the sons of uh, 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 one of the, the, these kind of tribes who were related to... A Scythian prince who built the Tower of Babel, one of these 72 tribes, is kind of connected to this this fellow uh, Milesian Milos Bonius, like a Spanish soldier, who they come to Ireland. So these, this is the coming of the Gael, of the humans, basically. But that's a Christian, again, a Christian interpretation of trying to root it in the, the kind of uh, early phases of, kind of biblical interpretation, 
to account for the existence of um, humans in this place. But the idea was that there was a battle between the Milesians and between the, the Tuatha-Danann, um, and after all this kind of magic and so on ensued, the Tuatha-Danann were, were routed and they lost. And they took the, the, the country was kind of split in half. It was said that the Milesians would take the top half and that the Tuatha-Danann would take the bottom half. And by that they meant the Milesians, the humans who became the Gael, would live on the surface of the earth mm. and that the Tuatha-Danann would have to go under the ground. So they poured into all these forts and caves and holes in the ground and that's where they have their palaces and that's where they have their kingdom. But they can appear to humans and they can come in, in these kind of flashes of the fantastic and, and disrupt everything basically. Um, so that was the kind of the, the, the book for anyone who's interested or the manuscript that details that sort of material is Lairgawala Aaron, the Book of Invasions, an 11th century manuscript. So quite late reading comparison, again, penned by Christian monks, but suggesting that there's this older race of kind of pre-Christian deities and varying characters who inhabit the natural landscape um, and who have become the, the fairy host that, that live around us, basically. So that was the kind of the mythological interpretation of the Masatuatidana. And then across Europe in the later kind of medieval period, I suppose, there was the, the, the Christian theologians attempting to account for the exist of this other world community that are just seen to, to live alongside us. So how do we explain them in the context of kind of Christian tradition and, and biblical framework? And it was suggested that the fairies in this instance were uh, angels who had rebelled against God with Lucifer and who were having kind of lost their rebellion, were being cast into hell but that God relented uh, in this instance and said that the these angels could live, could stay where they were. If they're in the air, they'd stay in the air. If they're in the land, they'd stay in the land. If they're in water, they'd stay there. If they're under the ground, they'd just stay wherever they are. And they became this kind of indeterminate host who roamed the earth waiting for the last day, mm. waiting for the day of judgment, basically. And that they're in this kind of, again, this liminal, you know, otherworldly um, kind of phase, basically, or, or state. And that that accounts for in Christian tradition, this idea of these fallen angels. Um, but they would have been kind of connected, even in the older frame, that they were done and connected with the natural landscape and these hills and with the full notion of the fallen angels in the other world and this kind of biblical and Christianized tradition of the medieval period, that they would have been absorbed in many ways or connected with the idea of the, the dead, yeah. that, that the dead often go with the fairies or when people die, sometimes they'll be seen with the fairies or sometimes a person will meet a funeral at night but they'll recognize loads of dead people in, in the crowd at the funeral and it's a fairy yeah. it's a fairy funeral so they have their own funerals they have their own affairs but you have those two kind of interpretations one mythological from the book of invasions roughly um, and then the other is this kind of medieval christian theologians accounting for the fairies as these fallen angels basically so much gets superimposed on the fairies in a way doesn't it in terms of all these beliefs yeah that you just have to kind of unpick the different threads when you are looking at um, ideas of who they are and what they are and where they came from mm. because you've got so many aspects and mm. um, one of the things that I enjoyed this idea of salvation when mm. they're waiting for the day of judge or judgment and it seems from what I was reading that the Irish fairies have less of a chance of salvation on judgment day whereas in other countries say for example Sweden and Norway there's far more positivity of them being redeemed and okay, being right. allowed into heaven because this, there's this whole idea, isn't there, that fairies don't have blood yeah. um, and thus can never get into heaven. Get into heaven yeah. But there's this far more positive, maybe it's the Irish mentality, that it's just all doom and gloom. But in um, Norway and Sweden, there's a lovely idea of a man walking past what is their equivalent of a fairy fort and he hears the music, again, a common motif that we mm. have as well. 
and he hears them singing, but what they're singing is, oh, we are hoping, we are hoping. No way, right. You know, and then it's a far more that they know that there is the potential to get into heaven. That's amazing, I never Whereas heard that. Whereas we, in the stories that we hear, we, you often see the fairies encounter, you know, St. Patrick, or they mm. go to a priest and yeah. they ask, or they ask a man, go to a priest and ask him, will we get in on the last yeah, day? And yeah. he always goes, and he's either told how to protect himself against them, or he's sent back with an answer that, no, you, you won't get in. Yeah. Um, so it's just that little, and um, I suppose, contrast between the two the traditions, two, two which is really interesting to me and what it that is, yeah. that, tells that us one about ourselves. The man who's um, out working on Sunday and doesn't go to Mass mm -hmm. and is approached at his field by a man who, who asks him, and again, it's it's not a little, it's not a little tiny fellow or with these little pink wings, whatever. It's just a man walks over to him and says, uh, he asks, "What is the fairy's prospect of salvation?" And this guy kind of doesn't know what he's talking about. Goes to the priest, who's kind of worried by this. Goes to the priest, and the priest tells him to dig a dig a hole, dig a grave, basically get into it uh, for when this guy comes back and to um, to cover the, the 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 grave with the shovel or the spade in the form of a cross. This he does, and then when the fairy comes back to ask him about the prospect of salvation, he gives him the bad news, telling him, not a hope, you don't have a drop of blood in you, so it's not going to happen. At which point, the kind of this, you know, the fairy then attacks the, the, the man, but he can't get past this cross. He's bound by, um, I suppose, the protection offered under, you know, Christian tradition or by God or whatever, yeah. and that he can't, he can't break this. But that's the idea that they're kind of just endlessly wandering around, waiting for the last day, basically. Yeah. Again, so much more than just Tinkerbell, isn't it? Yeah, totally, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of. I mean, one of the one of the the, the common ideas as well about disturbing these kind of places uh, is the sense of wrath that um, appears if you destroy a fort or if you, if you kind of build on one or whatever. And we have a few ex examples of that, um, which you could go through here. Or you kind of this is this is an account from County Kerry that our director here, Chris McCarthy, was was collecting. Um, and it just describes the, the what happened when somebody built in a fairy fort. Uh, and this guy is describing how, having built in the fairy fort, I think a neighbour of his, he kept having to just be, he said he brought all the cattle out of there in a box. They all just kept dying mm -hmm. until they just levelled it again. It gives an instance of the kind of do not disturb sign that should, this place took on these places. Yes. Sean, I just stopped you there for a sec. We were talking mm -hmm. about forts. Um, we're talking about more, I suppose, to do with the... With the Superstition enforced and, and um, that alone the force, but there were places that you didn't touch either. I mm. uh, And the one about Jim, old Jim Nagel's place, he taught me that uh, his uncle, Michael Morgan, taught him. Then a grand house there, no, he, uh, Jim says, well, do we lovely to roof it? He said, I have nothing to do with it. Look it up. But I said, Jim, I got bored, he says, and I. I did it, I wrote the three out of it, and they put a grand roof and a concrete floor on it. And they kept, he said, I put in the first couple of cattle I put in, he said, I bought them out in the, in the box. Mm. And uh, after a while, he said, I forgot about it, he said, the following year, he said, I put in more. So I sick calf and things, put in nothing, ever came out alive out of it, he said. Mm -hmm. So first he said, I, I went, he said, and I tore up the floor, he said, and I took down the roof off it and left it as it was. And things would dry right after. Well, sure, I mean, he didn't, he didn't, put, he didn't put him into the place, So that's, um, well, death of livestock, having flattened and, and built on, on the fort. So there's a kind of, there's a malevolence and there's the idea of, you know, everything will be, basically will be destroyed if you uh, 
if you if you destroy or, or disturb these places. This is another account from, from Jim Delaney collecting from Mick Walsh. I've heard a few types of this guy, Mick Walsh, and some, some people just kind of groan you. I love the, the recordings with this guy. But um, he's quite, he's chewing on a pipe and smoking a pipe, so at times he's quite um, difficult to discern what exactly he's saying, but sure, we'll have a go. But this is about a, a farmer who disturbs with his friend, they go and disturb this, this fort um, in order to get some firewood from it. What did you say about the forts, though? There was forts. You weren't supposed to be pagan burial grounds or didn't know whether there were fortifications or what. And the fairies were supposed to be in them. Well, then there's no one at Coe Bush and the fort or take a stick out or burn timber running. They'd be afraid something would happen or wouldn't plow it up. Mm. And anyone that did interfere with them hadn't a hell of a lot of luck either. No, that's true. In cases, no luck. Mm -hmm. That's true, I heard many stories. <coughs> yeah, they wouldn't touch them. And the way they'd look at them, it was left there and there's there so long and I'm not going to be the man to do anything with them. And then there was, wasn't much firing in the town of land not a hundred miles from here, up near the mountain. There were two farmers and they had no firing. But there was one of them at a great fort, you see, <coughs> a timber. So this other farmer asked give me that horse, see that timber, and I'll cut him with We gobs this money. As a fort, I wouldn't like to interfere with him. What do you want to interfere with him? If you give it to me, I'll guarantee you that's only a bloody old superstition. You needn't be minding about that. So the man said, go ahead, says he in court. So, well, he came down with a saw and done a couple of young sons. The manufactured it and cut the timber down and drew it home and burnt it. What is the man that gave him the fort told me? Well, you know what he said? Nearly every heifer I had and he had died. Cows, cattle, horse, calves. The bloody looking sword. Well, the man well, as well? Yes, the man that gave him the fort. Well, Paul said, I sure, it was your own bloody fault. You gave him permission to cut it. Mm. Even though you weren't cutting it yourself. And he yeah. cursed. Nearly every half of the two was, had died. And he used to meet Conan. No, you bloody looking so and so. You cut that fort and you got me into trouble as well as yourself. Mm -hmm. That's not very many, 30 years ago. Yeah. So, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you bloody so and so. You bloody so and so, that's it. So it's like you cut that fort and you got me in trouble and you got the two of us in trouble. That there's kind of, you, you interfere with these spots, these spaces, and. Uh, well, no good will come of it. Basically, yeah. this is this is the the ba this is the the basic idea, I suppose. And what amazes me is time and again, if you ask someone, do you believe in fairy lore? Oh no, 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 never, never. This is modern Ireland. Mm. But then they won't do certain things. Yeah, they won't very common, yeah. build in this field. They won't move this bush. They won't cut this. They won't chop that. And so you're trying to. Um, piece both beliefs together mm. but again we go through the scrapbooks as we're indexing them and it's fascinating just as a snapshot of social history in Ireland in the 30s and 40s I've come across numerous articles if, if you use the keyword fairy even just um, when I was doing it out of curiosity yesterday in a space of 
maybe 10, 10 or so years, you've got 83 mentions. Mm. And one of them, I might just highlight a few of them, because it's just quite, again, just to show you that this was in the national papers as being um, a realistic snapshot of contemporary belief in fairies. So one of them from the Irish press on the 27th of October, 1937, is a small article about an Englishman by the name of Mr. Louis H. Taylor of Yorkshire, who was applying to live in, or was applying to rent a cottage on Inishmore, one of the Aran Islands. And it kind of goes on to note that this house had been offered for sale by public auction and the tenancy was advertised several times, yet nobody ever came forward to accept it, probably because the previous tenant vacated it on the grounds that it was haunted by fairies. And then you've got... What year was that, sorry? 1937. Amazing. And then you've got court cases. There's a court case um, noted in this is 10 years earlier in 1927 where there's a case of a man who had removed stones from a fairy fort Hmm. and did not have a moment's peace until the stones were um, returned and some ill actions that had resulted as that but time and again you see these actual court cases time spent in the courts of law discussing these idea of evil eyes and blinking and overlooking mm. and fairy forts and the, this idea of the kind of haunted house mm. by the fairies and to me it's fascinating just as a snapshot <clears throat> of what people believed and yeah, yeah. kind of were worried about at that time. Even, even if you take um, on the topic of say this material appearing in the newspapers if you take in contemporary language whatever the notion of a, a sudden paralysis or a sudden kind of um, uh, unexplained illness that, that affects a person. The term that we use for that in a medical context or nowadays is taken directly from fairy belief when you suffer a stroke. Yes. It's from a fairy stroke. That's true. Or to be fairy struck or elf struck or elf shot. Um, but that notion of suffering a stroke is, is a direct lift from, from fairy belief, which you see now and is used to determine or to describe a sudden, a sudden paralysis, a sudden kind of ailment that manifests. But again, there's no... There's no um, immediate kind of connection say between the two things but the idea that they could they could suddenly cause all manner of ailments um and and wasting diseases or um sudden unexplained illnesses in children or in adults or um some form of kind of mental derangement or whatever that that these are often explained with reference to to this other world other world group um, but as well as the, you know, as you mentioned there, that even certain spaces can't be inhabited, or if they are, no good will come from it. That unless until you take the kindling back that you took from the fairy fort, you won't have any rest. Until you take the stones back, you won't have any rest. There's a piece here recorded for the Urban Folklore Project, um, from a Chris and Kathleen Farrell in 1980 in Tobraden, in uh, South South County Dublin, and uh, this is where they're describing a house that was built on a fort and how it was then understood to be a kind of haunted place, and that a young man in that family, he died, and having died, the spell was apparently broken, so they say. God. Do you remember the house down at the Gulf? That the fairies were supposed to be in that years ago. And do you remember that by the met with the ex? Oh, the by that was killed. Mm. And somebody said that broke the spell. The fairies, the people that were in it In it, you used to that. say that. Mm. I don't know how true that is. Hmm. And it was mm. supposed to be built on a fairy fort. Where's this now? Tenham High Church. High Church, the Grange Club. This was in the woods, in the Grange Club slope. And the people had bad luck, was it, because oh, of that? The people... Yes. <coughs> Excuse me, you can tell.
better than I can. Well, the people didn't seem to get on in the house. What about the doors being open? Opened and all at night when it was locked. This was supposed to happen. And then the young man was killed. He was killed off a motorbike, I think. And they never heard anything after, after that. that. This was supposed to break the spell mm-hmm. right now. So that again is the idea that, you know, there's some kind of sacrifices required. I mean, even the material we talked in a previous episode about vernacular architecture and again, choosing a site for a traditional, to, to build a house in tradition, the idea of a sacred or enchanted landscape that you need to sacrifice to something to propitiate the spirit of the ground upon which you're building. Yeah. Sometimes that was an animal and so on, or, or sometimes in older traditions a person, but you find echoes of that in, in a certain sense that there has been a transgression, there has been a, a breaking of a kind of order, and now disorder is ensuing until that kind of cosmic balance is realigned. And in this case, as suggested by these women, that it's it's the life of a young man in that house that restores the situation to, to an apparent yeah. order that a debt is kind of paid, basically. Those kind of legends of fate you find are quite common, even the idea of the, the river that says um, every three years or every ten years that cries out um, a voice is heard saying the hour has come but where is the man and it demands a body to, to be brought into it to drown or whatever that that's true kind of sacrifice in, in a certain space and there's one of those in County Clare because um, my flatmates and I we did some authentic field research there over the excellent, week excellent. We, as, as you do yeah. when we were preparing and we sat down for a good hour and discussed what our beliefs were on the fairies mm. um, and one of the girls from County Clare who has a great neighbour um, who I'd love to record because he sounds fascinating, which I might see about if we could do you something. Should, yeah. Because he just had such a vast trove. So she actually took the time to ring him hmm. and ring her father to kind of flesh out what exists currently in, in their area. And she came that with, back with that idea of um, the river calling out every seven years. Really, yeah. And there's a part, there's a road somewhere in County Clare near Fecal where you have Biddy Early and the whole lore mm. of her life and lore but again that there are so many deaths at this particular part of the road and it's believed that it's a fairy path mm. and that it should never have been built it's been built in the first place and that again something has to be sacrificed in order to try and appease it yeah mm. just, it, it just goes again and again that these stories have many of them are very tragic mm. and that the Generally, humans yeah. are then looking as a, for a way to explain them or to normalise the tragedy yeah, yeah they are they are Dark, and it's a question of kind of symbolising meaning, and it's something that, in again, it was, it was kind of ranting about earlier on, I suppose, but in the contemporary period, if you take the world just as an empty, secularised, disenchanted materialism, um, which is kind of where all of these creatures and deities have fled and just left us with kind of cold, hard logic, the description or the tendency in many ways is to try and answer the what of being, kind of just to describe things in immense detail at, at tiny levels. The why is kind of thrown away. There's no deeper answer as to the meaning attached to these things. Whereas in tradition, what we find with this sort of material is that it's, it, it all relates to, to meaning and the subjective nature of experience. Um, but that isn't, its subjectivity isn't, it doesn't render it useless, mm. basically. But, but in, in, again, in common terms, it's kind of only that which can be described or experienced by all people at once is, is taken as being valid. So when you look at a landscape, it's not a zone of another world kind of site or whatever. It's just consists of the material from which it's composed, basically. And, and that's that's all that it is. But the meaning kind of goes out the window. Um, but in the context of this sort of material that we look at, the idea of taboo and transgression and death and sacrifice is very common with the fairies. And the idea that, I mean, even the idea that there's the naming taboo where you don't call them the fairies, you don't call 
uh, again that they don't like that so what you call them is the good people or the gentry or Nadine Ushla or Nadine Maha whatever so that not because they're morally good but because you don't want to displease them and because they're all around all times uh, listening to us and you don't want to to annoy them or upset them Um, except on Sunday apparently they can't hear you on Sunday. Oh, what are they doing on Sunday? Well, I suppose it's on account of the power of kind of, of Christ or Christian tradition that the Sabbath renders them deaf to human oh, affairs. So you're safe on Sunday. Good too. to if, know. If you, to want know. To, if you want to speak ill against them, you can do so on Sunday. But we should say, just to bring you back from the rabbit hole of dystopian Ireland oh. and the end of the world as we know it, okay. that they are forces of good as well as evil oh, intentions. Absolutely. Which we should remember. I wouldn't say evil. Well, no, that's uh, true. Yes, I'd just say kind of morally questionable, dangerous. They're, they're dangerous, not, they're maybe not... malevolent as opposed to evil. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, that was the wrong word. But they are. They help. They hinder, but they also help. They do. And, and, um, and bestow gifts. They bestow gifts, and and there's a piece here. We have a recording, uh, which describes the the a woman. This is the guy who gave the list of forts in his locality in Armagh, Patrick Carroll, in 1965, and he's describing a woman, a widow woman. So a woman whose life would have been tough, she had her family, she had raised her children, but the fairies harvested her crops and, and all this sort of stuff, so they, they bring gifts as well. I heard my grandfather telling it about the, uh, this woman, her husband, age. he had a fair good crop, he hadn't a very big barley of land altogether, about 20 acres, but he had nearly all in, in oats and spuds. And the husband died <coughs> in the summertime and uh, she had no help, she had only herself and some very young children. And... Uh, it was a bad, bad year, very bad harvest weather, lots of rain, and it was difficult for the neighbours even to get their own saved, and they did intend to come to help her when they'd get their own done, and had very good intentions, but they never materialised. And one morning she got up and the corn was all cut and stooped. And uh, she had heard noises out in the thing and saw some little small figures moving about. And uh, it was generally believed that the fairies did it. And then the spuds came along, and one morning she got up and the spuds were all dug in the pits. And uh, uh, the people around there, uh, they decided that this fairy corn, they'd have to get some of the seed of it. And she was able, for years afterwards, she was selling the, the, the fairy corn, uh, the subsequent crops, selling it at an enhanced value, bob or two, a barrel more than normally it would go. So you have the, the idea of the, the fairies, um, yeah, cutting and stooping the corn for her. And helping her out with her potatoes and then she'd sell this at the market and because of lazy men because of lazy men claire uh-huh. and a dead husband in fairness he's i mean he's dead he's not that lazy but because of her lazy so the poor children woman, yeah the poor woman basically yeah um but the, yeah that idea that there are gifts given by the fairies as well often the gift that would be given by them they might give it to you in secret and if you spoke about it it would disappear to be rendered useless yes like the man who had the never emptying tobacco pipe amazing which was very handy for him. Yeah. And the minute he... <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't it? And the yeah. minute he named, um, or when someone asked him, oh, I got it from, as a gift from the fairies, the very next day, Gone. the pipe was empty. Yeah, amazing. So that's don't common, name the gift. No, that's a common That's a common idea as well. One of the other most common kind of motifs that you find uh, for individuals out at night walking past the fairy forts that we've kind of been describing is that music is heard coming from them. That's a particularly common idea, and the, I mean, we could rant at great length about the connection between kind of art and music and the other world. Um, but this is an in account from an individual which describes um, a man, in, it, this is recorded in Cavan from Phil McDonnell, and he's talking about a man in the area who learned to tune from the fairies, um, which is not uncommon as, a, as, a, as a, an occurrence in tradition. The man who learned to tune from the, would you call them wheat people? 
Of fairies? Well, they were around here. They were called fairies. Yes. And uh, he was on his knees saying his prayer. And he had the music outside the house. And he took, he, he liked the tune that well that he took the, down the fiddle. And uh, he learned the tune. And he, it was his favourite tune at dances after. He was the name of uh, Terry McCorry. He lived in Munigashi. And uh, the people all flocked to hear the new tune, the fairies tune. So uh, some of them said, christened it McCorry's dream, that he was dreaming. But it would pay him at the present time if he could dream as good as tunes. <laughs> <laughs> There's not many coming out with as good yeah. ones now, are you? Yeah. So there you are, tunes learnt. And corn cut. Corn cut, happy days. But again, it was this idea of um, gifting music or the power of, you'd often hear about poetry, wouldn't you, as well? Yeah. And so you've got the great poets or writers, you've got the great musicians. We see kind of instances of harpers and fiddle players who acquired this gift um, and should never name it. And even immediately going into the natural world, you know, listening to a stream, taking a tune, a tune out of the stream or out of the river or just the natural world around you. But we have an old and uh, vibrant kind of tradition in our own inheritance or culture of, of, of the kind of the connection or, the, or the, the, the between, I suppose, the other world and the natural landscape and then the, the panoramas that presents to us and how we represent them um, in, in artistic forms, particularly not just narrative art and so on, but in song in, and in music. That's, a, that's an old and kind of common idea. That's true. Um, so that, folks is more than enough to be getting on with and that's only the tip of the iceberg really in terms of what we have here in the archive so if it's something you're interested in you're more than welcome to email us or pop in and have a look for yourself the primary sources we have some wonderful books in the library that our collectors would have written over the years as well Sean O'Hoy and the Donegal collector has a a huge tome Sheesh here Honol which I couldn't recommend enough it's the stories that kind of we would have grown up listening to and again it's something that if you, maybe now that you've listened to the podcast, we hope we've kind of given you a bit of a new view on how to read these stories and kind of look at them as a, a kind of a, a roadmap in a way or as offering a code to understanding a, an older world as opposed to just being these whimsical stories that are just there for pure <coughs> entertainment um, purposes that they actually have far deeper functions traditionally. So we've looked at... Kind of the idea of who the fairies were, where they came from. We've looked at misconceptions and hopefully dispelled a few of those. And we hope we've given you food for thought and that this will act as a starting point. It's something we'll probably come back to perhaps in a few other podcasts because we could go on for hours. Mm. But certainly send us your questions or come and visit us. You're always so welcome. And we hope that we've kind of helped in the mission to reclaim the fairies. No doubt. Don't be embarrassed by your own um, traditional cultural inheritance. And uh, that's, that's them, basically. There's kind of other world community between nature and culture, chaos and order. That's, that's where they live, which is where we also spend most of our time, I would think. Yes, absolutely. Uh, walking that thin line. Um, will I sign off with the piece? That last guy was talking about um, a tune learned from the fairies, but he describes there's a piece here, quite a famous tune, it's Perth Nabuki. Uh, which was learnt apparently from the fairies. This is a kind of a piece from the Blasket. And there is a guy who's lil- lilting this tune, which is apparently learnt from the fairies, and it's in popular tradition now. But we'll sign off with that and catch you next month. Lovely. See you then, folks. Slow. 
Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da